Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again. And you stalk, as we always do on a Tuesday, uh, it's time to chat with Jonathan de Butler, uh, who brings us stories from other parts of the world. Jonathan, good afternoon. Sean, how are you? I, I hope you can hear me okay. I'm on a phone line here. You are indeed, yeah. Uh, Jonathan can't be with us uh, in the studio today, but that, that's fine. Tunisia, we're going to go to uh, first, good. and uh, uh, the attempts at least to decriminalise homosexuality there. Yeah, this is um, a group of Tunisian lawyers and rights activists who on Thursday launched an appeal against the imprisonment of two men, right? So these were two men who were sent to prison uh, for same-sex acts, all right? And in Tunisia, under, under the country's criminal code, you can be sentenced to up to three years for that, okay? Um, now, the, what actually happened was the men were found guilty over alleged acts in, in, in a place called Kef, right? It's in the northwest region of the country. And this was despite what their lawyers call a completely empty case with no legal proof. And the reason that the lawyer is saying this is because their condemnation came after they refused to undergo anal examinations, right? And this was seen by the judges as proof of their guilt. So, like, it's not as if you know, they were caught in the act or anything mm. like that, yeah. or, or at least we don't know if it was, but the proof that was being used against them was this idea that, oh, well, you don't want to go undergo this anal examination, which the UN basically classifies as torture, uh, so that must mean you're guilty. And so they sentenced them to a year in prison each, uh, and so that's, that's what's happened there. Now, they did launch an appeal on in July of this year in a lower court, and it might have been a blessing in disguise because by going up to the higher court, the court of cassation, it might have a more widespread effect were the uh, sentence to be overturned at any stage. Mm. But uh, it's far from clear if that might happen. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very far from clear as to whether that will happen. I mean, there's two strands to this. As there, as there often is with, with many sort of gay rights campaigns or any campaigns like this, human rights campaigns, there will be, you know, a court, a, a case that will test the law and, and the, the legality of things and the constitutionality of it. But then Parliament has to play its part as well. And Parliament can't play its part at the moment in Tunisia because there is none. Uh, it was basically wound down by the president earlier this year and it's highly unlikely, given the announcement that the president made just last week uh, around a constitutional referendum in the middle of next year, uh, that there's going to be any parliament until the end of 2022. So it's, it's quite something. Wow, my word. Right, Benin, we're going to go to uh, next word. The leader of the, of the opposition has just got 20 years in prison for doing what, allegedly? <laughs> Yeah, well, the last time we were on about Benin, it, it was quite a good story around reproductive rights. But unfortunately, more often than not, uh, in the last five or six years, when we've been talking about Benin, it, it's more talking about its slow um, uh, sort of erosion of the de- slow erosion of democracy in that part of the world due to um, the presidency of uh, Patrice Talon, who came into power in 2016 first. Uh, he won that first election by 65%. His most recent election victory was won with 86%. So we've seen it before in so many places. Uh, you can see where it's going. So he, he's probably going to try and hang on for as much or as for as long as he possibly can. 
And this particular opposition politician is a woman by the name of Rekia Madagu. She's 47 years of age. She was a minister in the previous administration, okay, a former justice minister. So she, she has a bit of political clout. She would have a good bit of political support. And she was going to run in that most recent election back in April of this year. Uh, and obviously there were people, let's just say, who were close to Talon who, who probably didn't like that. And just before the elections in, in April, she was arrested uh, and accused of trying to disrupt the ballot and destabilize the country by paying for assassinations or assassination attempts, at least. Um, so, you know, she's been languishing in jail ever since then. And her court case lasted the guts of 20 hours, Sean, uh, 20 hours on a Friday in, in a court called the Economic Crime and Terrorism Court, which was also set up in around about 2016 when Talon first came to power. Uh, and they found her guilty and they sentenced her to 20 years. And she's not the only one. And uh, earlier in the week, uh, a man by the name of Joel Aivo, uh, another opposition figure, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison uh, for plotting against the state and money laundering. So an awful lot of opposition leaders are you know, either in jail or they've left the country. Um, so it, it, it's not a good sign of, of how uh, things are going, uh, certainly from a democratic point of view, in Benin. Yeah. Are, are there other people who perhaps might take their place? Uh, oh, well, there's always people queuing up there. I mean, it, it's a fairly, you know, up until recently, uh, it, it always got a bit of a pat on the back for being seen as one of the top performing democracies in the region now. Having said that, you've got uh, Togo right beside where you've got Four Nasingbe. He's been in power since uh, 2005, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, and then you've got Burkina Faso up the road as well, where you know they have their um, long-term, um, you know, uh, power hoarders or whatever you want to call them. Mm. So, within the region, it's it's done quite well. Um, so, I suppose there there will be people who, who will be ready to take their place. There will be a, a, an element of opposition that will, will be there. And there's, there were protests earlier in the years, in the year when it became clear that Talon was taking things too far. Um, but if he's able to put people away for 10 and 20 years at the drop of a hat, it's going to be quite frightening for them. Yeah, I would imagine so. Right, the, the UK we're going to go to next, or at least people who are entering the UK, they can't bring their hunting trophies with them. Yeah, an interesting story. Um, It's basically around new legislation that has been drafted. Um, We'll give it to George Eustace, who's the Environment Secretary. He's the one who's looking after this. And it it comes two years after the government pledged to introduce a ban specifically on Britons who kill endangered animals abroad for fun who will not be able to bring their hunting trophies home, right? So this is very interesting because... um, Uh, In the past two years, according to a a group called the Campaign to Ban Trophy Hunting, a very specific name, we we, we can no no prize for guessing what they do, Um, they say that 300 trophies have been taken home from endangered animals shipped to the UK and mounted on walls or whatever you want. And this proposed law will prevent big game hunters from bringing home body parts of 7,000 species, right? So lions, rhinos, elephants, polar bears, whatever you're having yourself. And I think what this is going to do and what's really interesting about it is uh, because I looked up some websites, you can actually go onto websites and and see people standing there or sitting there with the the, um, 
springboks that they've shot or whatever the wild animal is that they shot. And they give you a breakdown of the prices, right? And a big income stream for these people is the taxidermy side of it, right? So the, 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 the butchering of the animal and then the, the stuffing of it and sending it home. That's nearly as much as the actual taking you out to go hunting in the first place, right? Mm. So um, I think what's interesting about this is the fact that they're trying to hit them in two places. So discourage people from going there in the first place, but that if you do go, you're not going to be able to bring your head of a lion home and mount it on the wall and show everybody what a great person you are by shooting a lion with a gun mm-hmm. from 100 metres away. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I think it's interesting in that respect that it's trying to hit the phenomenon in two strands. Uh, and this was something that uh, Boris Johnson and indeed his father were, were were very keen on implementing. Yeah, interesting. Boris Johnson, whose whose political head might well be mounted on a wall fairly soon, with any luck. Um, his 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 father was big into this. Uh, Stanley, of course, uh, and and campaigned extensively in favour of the ban. And Boris Johnson himself called trophy hunting a disgusting trade. And it's also interesting because I was I was something struck me about it, what the Tory. Um, line on was on, on fox hunting right and it's only recently that they actually overturned their up until 2019 i think it was they offered a free vote on overturning the legislation that was brought in controversially by labor back in 2005 uh, and now they've gone with a, an anti-fox hunting policy um so that's that's quite interesting uh i just wanted to see to the tally with with what they were saying in this legislation and it seems to uh, to have right, okay. Though I wouldn't be writing off Boris Johnson, though uh, at the same time, uh, India. We're <laughs> going to go to next, and uh, this is an interesting one. Uh, a man trying to uh, uh, fake his own death, and the cops stopped him. Yeah, I couldn't have put it better myself. Yeah, yeah this is, is is a man, Sudesh Kumar, a thirty-six-year-old uh, ne'er-do-well. I think we can say uh, from Uttar Pradesh. Now, Uttar Pradesh is the most populous state in India. It's in the um, northeast of the country. Now, this guy was had been out on parole, and the reason he was out on parole, or the reason he was in prison in the first place, was because he had been charged with the murder of his own 13-year-old daughter in 2018, right? He was sent out on parole because of COVID, okay? And that shows you how bad it was in the prisons. They were basically willing to let people out and walk the streets who... who Okay, he wasn't convicted yet, but had been charged with doing this. He got a sense, because the pandemic was maybe coming under control there, that he might be sent back to prison, and he didn't really like that idea. So he hired a man by the name of Domen Ravidas to carry out repair work on his home. Now, Ravidas had the same height and, and sort of build as him, and what did he do? Only murder him and then dump him and set his body on fire and put his own ID on the charred remains, right? So when the police found the body the next day, they said, oh, this is Sudesh Kumar, the guy we released on parole for killing his 13-year-old daughter. We better get his wife to come in and identify the body. And so the wife came in, identified the body, or said, yes, that's my husband. And, of course, she was in on it as well. He hadn't died at all. He had murdered this poor man in an attempt to make it look as if it was his his own death. Um, the police began to get suspicious uh, from various different tip-offs that they had, and they eventually came off, uh, sorry, came across some CT, CCTV footage of 
uh, Sudesh Kumar carrying the body of his victim to the, uh, you know, the, the, its ultimate resting place. Um, and then they got a tip off that he was going to come back and visit his wife. And they arrested uh, the two of them uh, in, a, in a kind of a sting oper- operation, if you will. Um, so, yeah, a, a horrible story. But, um, uh, yeah, not great. Yeah. Uh, God, what a horrendous individual. And and Yes. And presumably then the wife uh, knows that he murdered their daughter or, or any. Well, I don't know now, yeah. to be honest with you. Um, I, I really don't know. I, I, I didn't get into the story of the daughter so much, unfortunately. It was, it was, I was more focused on this. Uh, but I, I suppose as, as uh, time goes on, you know, uh, the police, you would think, would use her as, uh, you know, she, we, she would use leverage in order to dob mm-hmm. him in. Uh, and, and we'll find out more. But uh, we'll see what, what comes of it. Right, Japan, we're going to go to now. A horrific fire, um, which I, I didn't <coughs> read about anywhere, uh, which, which it looks like it may have been deliberately set. Yeah, this is um, a story from Osaka that some people might have seen. So Osaka is one of the biggest cities in Japan, of course, about 3 million people, and um, 27 people are feared dead uh, after a fire broke out in a building. Now, I, I had a look at the, the at some photos of the building, right? And it's in a very built-up part of um, the city. And it, it was very narrow itself, right? And one of the problems with it was that there was actually only one stairwell in this particular building, which is something of a, of a no-no, to be honest with you. But then again, um, it was it's believed that it was started by a man, a 61-year-old, who police are saying had connections to the psychiatric clinic that was on the fourth floor of this particular building. Obviously, the police think that he must have had some gripe and he was actually seen entering the building with a paper bag that had liquid leaking from it uh, and subsequently, you know, something went terribly, terribly wrong or I suppose right from his point of view and and, and 27 people um, have died as a result. it's not the first fire like this that we've heard of in uh, in 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 this part of the world. And in fact, last year there was two thousand five hundred instances of arson. Would you believe which killed two hundred and thirty six people uh, in Japan, which is quite a number, um, a very dramatic uh, <clears throat> sort of way to resolve issues, if if you know what I mean. If, yes. if that's not a really wrong way of putting it, but. 236 people killed in arson attacks, I, I thought was staggering. That is indeed staggering. Right, uh, the Philippines we're going to go to next. So, is Duterte out of politics completely? Well, that remains to be seen. And, and first of all, uh, probably the, the biggest story in the Philippines was was that um, uh, tornado. It was a tornado mm. or typhoon. I think it's typhoon in the Philippines that happened this year, which or just during the week, which was obviously terrible. Um, but another big story was the fact that President Rodrigo Duterte, who is coming to the end of his six-year term as president, uh, that term is going to end in June of 2022, he was going to run for Senate, and he's decided now that he's not going to. Uh, the thought of him, it, it's thought that he was going to run for Senate because it might offer him some sort of immunity from various different probes that are going on against him. As you know, the International Criminal Court are investigating him uh, for for human rights abuses around this war on drugs thing that he's had going on for years. Um, But 
for some reason he's decided to bow out. And he said last October that he was going to retire. But then again, he decided that he was going to run for the Senate. And now he's not running for the Senate. And it's very difficult to know what he's going to do. I mean, he's 76 now. His daughter, who's the current mayor of Davao, which is the city he was mayor of, she's running for vice president. And then his son, Sebastian, he's uh, contesting the mayoral race in the same city. So he's going to have a few family members in power if they are successful. Uh, and it looks like they, they could well be. You know, he's, he's popular enough in certain sectors of Filipino society. Um, so, um, uh, you know, he, he will still have his fingers in, in many political pies, I think. And have a few relations, perhaps, to uh, protect him if uh, the worst comes Absolutely. to the worst. Uh, right, uh, Haiti, we're going to go back to. This is a story you mentioned uh, uh, to us the other week about uh, those people who were kidnapped. Yeah, finished the year on a, on a, on a high note, I suppose, uh, Sean. Uh, and this is uh, the story that we looked at um, a couple of weeks ago where 17 members of an Ohio-based Christian aid uh, ministry, well, that's what they're called, the Christian aid ministries, were abducted by a gang called the 400 Mawozo, right? And you remember, this happened in October, and you remember that there was a drip-drip of releases, right? So two people were released in November, and then there was three earlier this month, and we never knew who they were, whether there was, you know, because there was some kids in the group as well, and there was women and, and, and that kind of thing as well. Um, but now it appears that all 17 members of the group have, in fact, been released, right? So there's a couple of Americans, a couple of Canadians in there. Don't know if the driver, who was from Haiti and was also kidnapped, was released. He's not mentioned at all, for whatever reason. Obviously, not deemed to be human enough uh, to be mentioned in the reports. <laughs> uh, so it's not uh, it's not mentioned whether he, he's been released yet. And we don't know if any money has been exchanged. But I suppose the good news is that there are... 17 people who uh, who will be going home for Christmas. Yeah, and but for ordinary Haitians, is there is there a constant threat of being kidnapped this way? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's an everyday thing and it's not just uh, wealthy people, it's it's uh, poor people as well. Like it's in an absolute state uh and gangs are running the place by you know according to many people. Um so uh, yeah, there's the constant threat of it happening. I mean, I think, I think it has the highest rate of kidnappings in the world at the moment. I'm open to correction on that, but I seem to remember seeing that recently. So it's got the highest rate of kidnappings in the world at the moment. Right. So, what things should we look out for over the next week? Yeah, uh, the big thing is on uh, Christmas Eve. Two big things happening on Christmas Eve, Sean. Firstly, um, there is presidential elections happening in Libya, which will be very interesting. As we know, Colonel Gaddafi's, uh, one of his sons, is running uh, for election in that. Uh, and then, of course, on the same day, uh, I was on to my contacts up in Lapland, and they told me that booster shots and everything have been given. So uh, Santa is confirmed for uh, takeoff on the 24th, and so he should be coming to Ireland around about I don't know, seven thirty, eight o'clock uh, that evening, maybe a little bit earlier, depending on uh, depending on what the weather is like. So uh, that's all looking good, but that's the big thing to watch out for, Sean, yeah. this week. That's uh, that is fantastic news. And uh, apologies, folks, uh, for the phone line there. Jonathan wasn't in his uh, Colombian uh, um, summer house; he was actually just phoning from the south side. Uh, that just shows you, uh, Jonathan. Thanks a million as ever, and uh, happy Christmas uh, to you and yours. And we'll talk to you in the new year. You are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. We're going to take a break after that, thinking about a better future. 
Moncrief on News Talk. Brought to you by Avant Money. Think you're getting the best value from your bank? Think again.